Well, we're continuing through our series on prophecy and the Word of God, and we've come now to the, the New Testament. We'll be spending uh, today and next week looking at uh, what the New Testament has to say about prophecy, and today we'll, we'll do a bit of a, an overview of how uh, God used uh, prophecy and his prophets uh, in the New Testament. John the Baptist wasn't actually the first prophet of the New Testament um, in two senses uh, because we know the stories of Jesus' birth and uh, there was uh, Simeon and Anna and Zechariah and Mary herself uh, who all uh, spoke the word of the Lord uh, at the announcement of the coming of Jesus and of John the Baptist himself. So for 400 years there had been silence it seemed and then all of a sudden there was this outbreak of prophetic uh, utterances that marked uh, the beginning of a new age. Well, in our reading we saw John the Baptist uh, in prison uh, and soon to be killed. That's in fulfilment of his own words. Uh, he was there simply to prepare the way for Jesus. Uh, John said, he must increase but I must decrease. Now, was he having doubts as he languished in prison? Some think so. But more likely, though, is that he sent his disciples to ask Jesus this question for their benefit, not for his. Note the terminology that was used here. Um, Uh, He refers to Jesus here as the Christ. Everywhere else in the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as Jesus. Uh, Here, Matthew says the Christ. John's not just hearing about what Jesus was doing, these amazing things. He recognised that what Jesus was doing were the deeds of the Christ. The, The things that the Jews expected the Christ to do when he came. So this is John's final lesson, really, for his own disciples before he died. Jesus is the Christ. He wanted them to see that. And when he was dead, they were to follow Jesus. Then we saw in verse 11, uh, sorry, 12 to 14, this slightly enigmatic statements. The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Now the Greek here is a, is a little bit tricky to translate into English and the, the English here makes it sound like uh, violent people are attacking the kingdom of heaven but Jesus is actually communicating the opposite to that idea. What he's saying here is the kingdom of heaven is bursting into the world violently in him and people are being conquered by the kingdom and being brought into the kingdom. It's the kind of language that Jesus used when he went out and preached and said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Something revolutionary has exploded onto the scene. The Christ has arrived and he's brought the kingdom of God and the world's being turned upside down 
never to be the same again. See how verse 13 shows us this discontinuity. There's a new thing happening, but there's also a continuity. John the Baptist marks the end of an era when the law and the prophets prophesied until him and then he marks the beginning of a new era where the kingdom of God has come and is being proclaimed. But God's word is still being spoken. I said John wasn't the first of the New Testament prophets. He actually wasn't technically speaking a New Testament prophet. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was the fulfilment of the words from Malachi chapter 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So after, as I said, 400 years seemingly of silence from heaven and the Jews themselves considered Malachi to be the last prophet. All of a sudden, God is speaking again. Elijah has figuratively returned in the person of John the Baptist to announce not not a a reinstallation of this succession of prophets we see through the Old Testament, but the day of the Lord. And what happens on the day of the Lord is God himself shows up and God himself speaks directly face to face. The prophets and the law aren't done away with by the coming of Jesus, but there is... uh, To use a word that's trendy today among many who claim to be prophets, there's a shift taking place. Because now the law and the prophets have been fulfilled by Jesus. We who live by faith in him, as it were, we, we experience God's word in a new and a different way to the Old Testament saints. As far as we understand prophecy in its broadest definition, we could say prophecy is God's words and actions being declared to God's people. In that sense, prophecy continues. However, its mode of delivery and its vocabulary has now changed. See, the Old Testament prophets, they spoke from their vantage point. They looked both backwards and forwards. They looked back to the great acts of God in the Exodus, to the law given in Sinai. They called people to obey the law, to hear it, to abide by its terms, to, uh, to live in the covenant that the Lord had made with them at Sinai. And then they looked forwards and they declared to the people what the Lord would do in light of his covenant with them both his judgments for their disobedience and his coming salvation, which, in which he would put the law in their hearts and write it uh, on their hearts within them. They looked forward to the day of Christ. 
These prophets, they never spoke from a vacuum, as we've been seeing. They, they knew the law and they spoke to a people who knew the law. They knew the promises and they spoke to a people who, who were living in the unfolding of these promises. And the Spirit then took what they knew and enabled them to speak the, way of the, the word of the Lord in a way that enabled the people to see what the Lord was doing and what he would do when he sent the Messiah. So that's Old Testament prophecy from the vantage point of before Christ. Prophecy in the New Testament has the same pattern, looking back and looking forward. But now the vantage point has changed. The view back is not to Mount Sinai and to the law, but to Mount Calvary, to the law fulfilled in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. John the Baptist preempted this when he said to his disciples, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Prophecy now flows from this reality of the crucified, risen and ascended Jesus. So the prophets, New Testament prophets look back to the cross and they look forward to the fulfilment of the promise of the new heavens and the new earth at the return of Jesus and the call to God's people now to live in anticipation of that day. Now John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, was given visions when he was in exile and he was told that these visions were the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is is written in it for the time is near. The prophetic words that John gave in the book of Revelation was about what is to come, what was to come, but it was primarily about Jesus Christ. Later, towards the end of the book of Revelation, John writes, The angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Prophecy is none other than the testimony of Jesus. That means both that Jesus is the primary subject of prophecy, but also that prophecy is Jesus himself giving that testimony. As I've been preparing this series, I've been following with some interest the exploits of many contemporary self-proclaimed prophets. Uh, there's a lot of them out there at the moment, especially at this time, this, uh, this year that we've had with the coronavirus epidemic, uh, pandemic and also the things happening in the United States. It seems that these uh, modern day self 
proclaimed prophets fall into two main categories. Uh, There are those who deal with very vague and general prophecies. They use lots of buzzwords like breakthrough, double portion, acceleration, shaking and shifting. But they read much like the horoscopes you might read in the newspaper. They're so vague, they're so non-specific that anyone really could pick them up and apply them and interpret them any way they want to and say, oh look, that prophecy came true because it happened in my life. Then there are those who are making very specific and very definite predictions, normally about political affairs or about coming revivals or the timing of the end of the age, the rapture and all those kinds of things. And often what happens is those prophets need to double down when what they predict doesn't actually happen and they need to somehow try and reinterpret what they said to say, well, I didn't actually mean it in that way. I I mean it something differently. Or they say, God's actually now changed his plans. Or Satan has stolen that word, that victory, because you, the people, didn't have enough faith. As I said, it's been happening a lot recently as the US elections haven't gone according to what many of these people uh, have been predicting. The scriptures actually give us a test of what a true prophet, uh, what we should expect from a true prophet. This is from Deuteronomy 18. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So if a prophet says this is going to happen and it doesn't happen, uh, they're not speaking God's word. Now that's an Old Testament passage and uh, obviously we're in the New Testament times, but the only thing that has changed about that passage is uh, the penalty. In ancient Israel, this person was actually put to death. It was a serious crime. Uh, But the, uh, the principle remains. If someone claims to speak in the name of the Lord and it doesn't come to pass, then they haven't spoken. God has not spoken through them. That wasn't the only test. In chapter 13 of Deuteronomy, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So it may appear that the claimed prophet's words have come true. However, the prophet's role wasn't simply telling the future. That was just one part of it. It was to call the people to a pure and true true worship of God. 
So the words of a prophet were to be tested against what was already revealed in the law. I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods but me. Something I've noticed about uh, many of these modern day prophets in both of those categories I mentioned is that they say very little, if anything at all, about Jesus. Sometimes there's nothing to indicate that they're even Christian except that they're appearing on a Christian YouTube channel or TV channel. Often it's current political leaders or the prophet and their own experience or maybe even Satan himself who gets more mention than Jesus. And rarely when Jesus is mentioned, there's never any reference to his work of salvation in his death and resurrection. See, New Testament prophecy, true prophecy, doesn't have as its focus the political machinations of the kingdoms of of this world. It doesn't have as its focus the, the breakthrough that I need to experience in order to prosper or to flourish. The focus of true prophecy is the breaking in of the kingdom of heaven in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the testimony of Jesus that the kingdom of God has arrived and that we must repent and believe the gospel. So any prophet who doesn't tell you that is just a dreamer of dreams. Don't listen to them. When Jesus foretold the destruction of the temple, he said to his disciples, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, there he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. These words should both alert us and comfort us as we wait for that final day of judgment. We should be alert because if Jesus predicted that there would be false prophets, then we need to be discerning. We need to be aware whenever prophecies are given to not just accept anything that anyone says, but always test it against what has already been revealed in the Word of God. But we should also be comforted because if Jesus predicted these false prophets, then he knows about them and he is big enough to deal with them. He's promised that we are held by the Father. No one is able to snatch us out of his hands. The false prophets might try to deceive the elect, but they won't ultimately be successful. We may feel confused for a time, maybe, but they cannot rob us of our assurance that we have that Jesus himself is protecting us from the evil one. Verse 28, there is, uh, is a proverb. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Vultures are opportunists. They live on carrion, animals that 
have already been killed. They don't hunt themselves. They just sit around and they let the other animals do the hard work of hunting and then they feed on the leftovers. Jesus is telling us that these false prophets are like these opportunistic vultures, preying on those who are naive or who are immature in their faith or who are particularly vulnerable because of their life situation. And so they're easily led by these people promising them a breakthrough or some easy way to escape their suffering. So the call to be alert and watchful for false prophets is a serious one and a number of the New Testament books are devoted to that call. Just read 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Jude just as two examples. But equally as strong, equally as serious is the call for us to stand firm on the gospel that we've received and that will be the safeguard against any deception. The more we love and know the gospel, the more we'll immediately be able to spot the false prophets and dismiss them. Now in the book of Acts, we see the Spirit at work through true prophets. The book begins with the day of Pentecost, where the Spirit is poured out and Peter declares to everyone that there that what was happening was the fulfilment of the prophecy of Joel, verse 2, verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall dream dreams and your old men shall dream, dream, sorry, see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. This is a prophecy that that Peter is giving about prophecy. See how it's a prophecy that's actually dependent on what's already being revealed in the prophet Joel. The giving of the Spirit by Jesus as he sits at the right hand of the Father is on all flesh, not just a select few as it was in the Old Testament. Now it will be on both men and women, young and old, slave and and free. And the goal is singular that they shall prophesy. Now that alone should be enough for someone to give to answer someone if they say, Has prophecy ceased? to say, Well no. Because if we throw out the prophecy from this passage, then we'd have to be consistent and throw out everything else in Joel's prophecy. We say the coming of Jesus no longer applies or the, the offer of salvation to those who call on his name no longer applies. So prophecy continues and the pattern of prophecy in Acts is like the pattern of prophecy we saw in the Old Testament. There aren't prophets on every page and we know that there were prophets there behind the scenes, being used by the Spirit to guide the church and to, uh, to build the church as the Gospel was being proclaimed from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And occasionally, the book of Acts highlights the ministry of prophets at crucial times. 
as God is rolling out his plan for the church. So let's look at these events. This is in Acts 11. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined every one according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So this happened just after the persecution that had scattered many of the Christians out from Jerusalem and some of these Christians ended up in Antioch, a city about 480 kilometres north of Jerusalem in what's modern day Turkey. See how Agabus' prophecy about the famine served an important purpose. It affirmed the connection between these scattered Christians and those still in Judea and it spurred them on into this great act of generosity because they recognised in a sense the, the debt that they owed to their brothers and sisters still in Judea for their faithfulness to the gospel. But note also the mention of Barnabas and Saul who were the couriers of this aid. This prophecy isn't just about helping those in need but it's, it's actually about also establishing the ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles through establishing the ministry of Barnabas and Saul. Paul actually mentions this trip in Galatians. He says, After 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. This revelation wasn't something Paul had had revealed to him. It was that prophecy of Agabus. And going to Jerusalem to take this money was then an opportunity for Paul to speak with the apostles, to receive an affirmation of his ministry and confirm that like they did, he believed that the gospel was for all nations. This famine, as all famines are, was sent by God and through sending Agabus the prophet, he ensured that it would be used for the advancement of the gospel. The next mention of prophets in Acts is in chapter 19, also, sorry, 13, also in Antioch. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, firstly, notice how Luke doesn't list first the prophets and then the teachers, even though it says there were prophets and teachers. The implication here is that these men were both. They were both prophets and teachers. The role of prophet and teacher came hand in hand. Their prophecies were tied 
to the teaching of the scriptures. Their credibility as prophets came from their faithful teaching of the word. And as they taught the word, they were then able in the spirit's power to speak of what the spirit was saying and doing. And notice also that the spirit didn't need to spell out what the work was that he's called Barnabas and Saul to. That was already known. Their ministry was to the Gentiles. However, the word needed to be given to make it clear that Paul and Barnabas' time in Antioch had now come to an end. It was the end of a season and it was now time for them to go out to preach to the Gentiles. Not just the local Gentiles, but those at the ends of the earth. And this prophecy here is what then propelled Paul into his missionary journeys. The journeys that would eventually take him to Rome and enable him to set his sights even on Spain, which for them was literally the ends of the earth. The prophet Agabus appears again uh, 16 years after we encountered him in chapter 11, in chapter 19. Uh, He entered the synagogue, this is Paul, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued uh, in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, I'm sorry, that's the wrong passage. Got up there. Let me read from my notes. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist uh, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While they were staying for many days a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said thus says the Holy Spirit this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles when he heard this when we heard this we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem then Paul answered what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart for I am ready not only to be imprisoned but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Sorry, that was chapter 21 of Acts, not chapter 19. Now, have you noticed that the prophets always seem to turn up in groups? In this case, uh, it's also an Old Testament pattern that we see carried over into the New Testament. The prophets don't operate in isolation. They're accountable to one another. Possibly Agabus had come to visit Philip in order to express fellowship with Philip's daughters, maybe to teach them and to train them in their ministry. But in the Spirit's timing, that visit coincided with Paul's visit. Paul who was heading to Jerusalem. Now those who first heard this prophecy thought it was a prediction of Paul's death. But Paul heard these words deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And he saw it as God's sovereign plan to get Paul to Rome where he could preach the gospel at the very centre 
of the Roman Empire. Well, that's it in terms of the mention of the ministry of prophets in Acts. Nearly all the other 30 or so uses of the word prophet or prophecy in Acts is a reference to the Old Testament prophets. And in the preaching of the apostles, they kept calling people to hear what was written by the prophets in the scriptures and how they spoke of Jesus. The book of Acts covers a time period of about 30 or so years. So while we read it through and it seems like there's all these things happening, miraculous things happening back to back all the time, uh, they're actually spread out over a longer period of time as God is just faithfully and patiently and steadily unfolding his plan and from time to time raising up a prophet here and a prophet there to be used by him to build his church and to send his church out. It's important that we see all of this in the historical context and the setting of the book of Acts. Luke wrote Acts to show how Jesus, through the Spirit, was establishing his church and was laying the foundation for the gospel to go out to the ends of the earth. Most of what he writes is descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, It's designed for us to see what Jesus was doing, not to be a template for how the church should do things and how the church should look down through the centuries and even today. The church in Acts was the newly birthed church, the church that existed before and even while the New Testament was still being written. Excuse me. So in order to get a full sense then of what the implications of the Spirit coming to fulfil Joel's prophecy are for us today, uh, we need to go beyond just reading about the stories of what happened in that first century or so. We need to look at the teaching of the New Testament letters and see what they have to tell us about prophecy. And that's what we'll do next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the God who still speaks. You are still sending out your word to the ends of the earth and by your word you are still calling and gathering in uh, those that you have set your favour on from before the foundation of the world. Thank you, Father, that we are part of that sovereign plan. Thank you that you have spoken to us through the scriptures, through evangelists, through the prophets, and the apostles, and that we have heard the good news of the gospel of your Son. Thank you too, Father, that you have poured your Spirit upon us, and that we are called to continue to speak and proclaim and declare your word uh, to one another and to all nations. We pray that by your Spirit's power and help, we might be faithful in that. In Jesus' name, Amen.